If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you're uh, looking at the, uh, the black Bible in the chair in front of you, that's found on page 897. And it's our custom here to, to work through a book of the Bible and to take it verse by verse and to consider what God is saying. So let me encourage you in this time to leave your Bible open, follow along with us as we consider his word together. Disappointment is not an easy thing. Disappointment can feel like an over overwhelming burden that you carry through the day, that you carry through the week, that you carry through your life. Proverbs puts it this way. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I wonder if your heart has known that sickness that comes from having hope deferred. When a friend or a family member lets us down, that's one thing. We, we sort of expect that from time to time. But what if our disappointment is not with a family member or a friend? What if our disappointment is with God? What if God seems distant? cold or unconcerned? What if God doesn't act the way that we expected or hoped? Disappointment with God can leave us disoriented. It can leave us angry. It can leave us bitter and cynical. And the Bible is not without examples of this. David himself wrestled with these questions in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's not the the pleading of a, a... uninformed or uninvolved or, 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 or distant theologian in a, in, a, in a high ivory tower. That's a man pouring out his heart to God in confusion and darkness. I wonder if you've wrestled with questions like David did in Psalm 13. I wonder if you've asked how long. Perhaps you're wrestling with that this morning. And if so, what are we to do What are we supposed to do with soul-crushing disappointment? What are we supposed to do when the situation that we're in feels as hopeless as death? Well, in our text today, we're going to see the power and the love and the authority of Jesus to reach into our hopeless situation and raise us up to an unshakable hope. That's the big idea of John 11. I'm going to give it to you ahead of time. John 11, the big idea is this. When burdened beyond your strength, rely on God who raises the dead. When burdened beyond your strength, rely on God who raises the dead. 
So with that kind of big idea of John 11 in mind, we can actually walk through chapter 11, and it breaks into four different scenes that we'll walk through. Scene number one, the delay. That's verses 1 through 16. Scene number two, the consolation. That's, that's verses 17 through 37. Scene number three, the resurrection. That's verses 38 through 44. And then scene number four, the rejection. Verses 45 through 54. The delay, the consolation, the resurrection, the resur- and the rejection. So with that in mind, let's, let's begin with that first scene, the delay. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet, his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. We'll pause there. John begins this this account uh, in, in his gospel by introducing us to a family. And we see three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We know from the text that Lazarus is gravely ill. He's on his deathbed. And then you have his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And verse 2 reminds us that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. We're going to see that in the next chapter, chapter 12. But I think one of the reasons he includes that detail here is to highlight the close and tender relationship that existed between Jesus and this family. In fact, in verse 3, Lazarus is referred to as Jesus' close friend, the one whom you love. And so when we look at the situation that we're introduced to, we have Lazarus who is gravely ill. We know that Jesus can heal people. We've seen him heal the paralytic. We've seen him make the blind to see. And we now we see that there's this close relationship between Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Jesus. And so they send for help, which is what you should do when you know Jesus and your brother is gravely ill. They send for Jesus to come and help. 
Again, knowing this relationship of love between Jesus, that he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, we expect that when Jesus gets the news, he is going to hightail his way to Bethany, race there, and heal his good friend Lazarus because of this love between him and Lazarus. That's what we expect. But that's not what happens, is it? Verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. He doesn't race to Bethany. He gets the news, and he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is meant to make us pause and scratch our heads and say, what's going on? What is Jesus up to? Imagine the scene in Bethany. Lazarus is on his deathbed. He's, he's gasping for breath. He's, on, he's holding on to life by, by a thread. Mary and Martha know this. They love their brother. And so we can imagine them taking a, a, a cold towel and placing it on his head to, to issue him comfort, only to get up and pace back and forth. They called for Jesus. Where is he? They wait. And they wait some more. A whole day passes. They wait some more. Another day passes. Jesus does not show up. The one who could heal their brother, the one they knew loved them, the one they had called on to help, doesn't show up. And Lazarus dies. You can imagine the confusion and the anger and the sadness erupting in their heart as a tangle, a mess of emotions. What happened? Where was Jesus? Didn't he get the message? Doesn't Jesus love them? And on the ground level, from what they can see, the sisters, they don't know what Jesus is doing. From their perspective, it doesn't make sense. He's got the power to heal. He doesn't show up. And so from their limited perspective, it's very likely that they begin to assume or are tempted to believe that Jesus doesn't actually care like they thought he did. That maybe they were wrong in believing that Jesus actually loved them like they thought he did. That's what it looks like from the ground level perspective, right? From what they can see. But as the readers, we very thankfully have the benefit of not the ground level perspective. We have the the perspective of a 30,000 foot high, big picture perspective. So we we can actually see what they can't see. In verse 4, Jesus explains what he's up to. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the purpose of this. It's similar to what we saw back in chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man. Now, we've got to be careful here. Don't don't mishear that purpose being for the glory of God. Jesus is not indifferent to Lazarus. He's not cold-hearted towards his sisters. Jesus is not treating this family as if they're cogs in the machine of his glory. 
when he says this is for the glory of God or that he may be glorified through it, that idea of glory in John's gospel means Jesus' self-disclosure. This is, this is John 1.14, God in the flesh, John 1.18, God showing himself, speaking, him, showing, he's speaking, he's, he's God's word to us, revealing God to us. So Jesus is saying this miracle is for his self-disclosure. His glory is him revealing God the Father to those who are around him. The miracle that he would soon perform would be a billboard in neon lights that puts God's power, God's love, and God's authority on display. Mary, Martha, and the rest of Jesus' disciples, they had seen Jesus heal. They knew he could do that, but they had more to learn about who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is after. Now, we have, to, we have to look at this text and, and, and acknowledge that letting a, when you have the power, power and authority to heal your friend, letting a friend die, that seems like a really strange way to show your love for them, doesn't it? When you think about what love looks like and you have the power to heal, letting your friend die does not seem Right? but it is his love. And that's what the text tells us. Look again at verse five. Verse five tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. God's word is telling us Jesus loved them. So, verse six, because Jesus loved them, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you see that? Now the stage, when Lazarus dies, now the stage is set that the Son of God may be glorified. Now again, God's glory does not come at our expense. God's glory is for our benefit. And that's what this text shows us. Notice in verse 14, Jesus says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, for your benefit, for your good, I am glad that I was not there. Again, it sounds strange for Jesus to say, I'm glad that I wasn't there. It's, it, it, he died. Why are you glad that you weren't there? I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. That's what he's after. Friends, if, if your view of God is small, then your trials and your hopeless situations will soon appear to you that they are outside of his ability. God's small, these things are too big for him. Which means that you're going to live your life as if you're on your own. You're thankful for God, but he, he can't really help you in, in this situation. So you live life like you're on your own. Friends, no wonder those who have a small view of God are often fearful, anxious, overwhelmed, angry, and exhausted. We need our view of God to expand. And in his love, for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, for their sake. That's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He's gonna take their small view of him. Yeah, we know he can heal, 
We know we, know we can make the, the blind to see, but this is death. He, he's going to take their small view of Jesus and expand it. He's going to show his glory to them and reveal the big God that Jesus actually is. So friends, when the darkness of depression refuses to lift and you wonder if God cares for you, when a friend betrays you and you wonder where God is, when a loved one dies in your arms and you're left asking, does God care? Like the psalmist, we should be honest with God with our questions. How long? Why will you forget us forever? We should be honest with each other as a church family with those difficult questions, with our, our Bibles open and, and, and on our knees together. We should be honest about those difficult questions. But John 11 provides ballast for the ship that keeps the ship of our life from tipping over in the storm. John 11 reminds us that God's delays however painful, however confusing from our limited perspective, God's delays are delays of love. His delay is not a delay of indifference. His delay is a delay of love. God is good. He always is good. He never ceases to be good. He's good all the time. As the hymn reminds us, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Well, friends, after the delay that we see in the first 16 verses, we come to scene number two. Scene number two, the consolation. Look with me at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, when the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have also kept this man from dying? Friends, to to console, to console is to comfort. It is to provide strength. It is to provide hope in the midst of difficult times. Mary and Martha are in difficult times. Their brother had died. And several times in this text, we're told that the Jews came from Jerusalem to Bethany to console Mary and Martha. That's a good thing to do. And yet, Jesus, his consolation is unique. It's different. It's, it far outshines any consolation that these Jews could provide. For Mary and Martha. Notice in the text that in their heartache, Mary and Martha share the exact same lament. Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary then in verse 32 says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By the time we get to verse 37, even the crowd is saying the same thing. Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Identical laments between Mary and Martha. But notice how Jesus' response to Martha is unique. It's different than his response is to Mary. When he comes to Martha in the very beginning, he responds with words of comfort to encourage and strengthen her faith. When Mary comes to him and falls at his feet, overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus does not share any words with her. We just see in verse 35, Jesus wept. One, he has words of encouragement. One, he has the consolation of weeping with her. There's a convenience store I'll pop in at from time to time, and when I get my stuff and I go to check out, um, almost every time (laughs) I go to check out my stuff, uh, the store clerk is looking at his phone watching a television program, and he just takes the stuff from me and takes the stuff, and he checks it out, and he's on the register, and he never looks up at me. I leave from the convenience store with the things that I need, but he never stops watching television. And it's very clear from the fact that I leave with what things that I need, but he doesn't care about me. He's indifferent towards me. He's more engrossed in his TV program. Friends, Jesus is not like that convenience store clerk. You don't just come to him for what you need and he's indifferent to you, bothered by you, putting up with you. Far from it. 
As our good shepherd, he calls us each by name. As our good shepherd, he knows the unique issues that we're dealing with. The struggles that are unique to us that might be different from the person sitting next to you. Jesus knows the differences between you and me and the person sitting next to you. He's the good shepherd who calls us by name. And so there's not a, there's not a one size fit all, fits all, kind of takes it from the shelf and different to us and says, here's your care, here's your comfort. No, 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 no. The good shepherd knows you. He calls you by name and he tailor makes his care and his love for you. That's how loving our good shepherd is. Friends, I pray that as we see how Jesus is offering consolation to Mary and Martha, that we would also see that he cares for us the same way and that we would not be reluctant to come to him because we assume he's like an indifferent store clerk, but rather we'd see his heart and run to him as the good shepherd. And not only that, I pray that we would, that we would ask God for wisdom as a congregation, that we would show the same care towards others in our church who are hurting, that we would pray that God would give us wisdom to provide unique care to unique individuals, just like Jesus, as we care for each other in our own pain and our own sorrow. Because we're not all the same. Okay, with that in mind, what I want us to do is step back then and look at how Jesus cares uniquely for Martha and then how he cares uniquely for Mary. Let's start with Martha in verses 17 to 27. When Jesus arrives on the scene, we're told in uh, the very beginning here in verse 17 that um, he had been, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So by this point, it's not a pretty sight inside the tomb. CPR is not going to be any help at this point. They've already held the funeral. They've already sang their songs of lament. They've already shared their memories of Lazarus. They've, they've put him in the tomb. They've sealed it up with a large stone, and it's been four days. So the hope of him recovering from an illness is long gone. So when Jesus reminds Martha in verse 23, your brother will rise again, it's a theologically sound reminder that Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection on the final day. Jesus talks about this back in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Death will not have the last word. Praise God for that. And friends, when we go to a Christian funeral and we mourn the death of one that we love who's in Christ, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. And we offer the same consolation. That brother, that sister will rise again on the last day. Not just as a spirit floating around. There will be a bodily resurrection on the last day. He or she will rise again. And we should offer that same consolation that Jesus does in verse 23. But Jesus' consolation goes beyond just a reminder of that resurrection truth. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And all these I am statements in John's Gospel remind us that Christianity is not a vending machine religion. 
We don't come to God for the stuff that we need in order that we can live independently of God. We come to God in our need to get God. We don't just come to God for bread. We come to get the bread of life. We don't just come to God for direction. We get the light of the world. We don't just come to God for guidance. We come to him as the good shepherd. And we've already seen this in, this in this text when the disciples are freaking out about going back to Judea in verse 8 because the Jews are trying to kill Jesus. Jesus does not say, well, here's a flashlight. Here's Google Maps. Good luck. He doesn't say that to them. He, he says, listen, as long as I'm here, it's day. I am the light of the world. He doesn't give them a flashlight in Google Maps. He gives them himself the light of the world. And he's saying to them in verse 9, if you follow me, you'll be all right. Trust me. I'll get you there. In the same way, Jesus does not just give Martha a resurrection truth. He enters into her hopeless situation saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you ever... As a Christian, do you ever think, you know, I, I, read, I read my Bible and I, I know God worked in the past. I, I've read about him parting the Red Sea and sending manna from heaven. I, I've seen the stories in the past of how he raised the dead and healed the sick. That's amazing. I believe that. And I, and I read my Bible and I know that God will work again in the future. I know that. I believe that. But deep down, do you in the quietness of your heart say, but I don't really expect him to work today. In the past, yep. In the future, yep. But today, not really. Friends, in the daily grind of going to school, raising a family, working our jobs, paying the bills, it is easy to operate as if God doesn't exist or as if God does exist, but he's not really involved. We slip into that mode of operating very easily. But I want us to notice something about what Jesus says in verse 25. He doesn't say to Martha, I was the resurrection. He doesn't say to her, I will be the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's present tense. Jesus' question to Martha then at the end of verse 26 is a powerful question. He, he states the theological truth about present tense, I am the resurrection and the life. And he looks at her in verse 26 and says, do you believe this? You trust me. I know that all you can see right now in your brother's death is pain and, and sorrow. You, you, you don't have in your own limited perspective the ability to see beyond that. You don't know what's coming, but I'm telling you, Martha, who I am. And I'm inviting you to trust me. Church, knowing, knowing facts is important, but knowing God is different. I, I can know facts about my wife, Katie, but that's far different. I, you know, she's got blonde hair, blue eyes. 
Um, you know, she's 5'7". I can tell you all, I can tell all those facts, but if I don't know her, that's a very different thing. And it's essential for us as Christians to know our Bibles. You should study your Bibles. You should have good theology like Martha does. She's got good theology. She's a wonderful theologian. But knowing our Bibles as essential as it is, it's not the same as knowing God and trusting him. Trials, as painful as they are, are an opportunity for us to go deeper with God. Trials become an opportunity from truths that are on paper to actually be truths that are in our hearts. And that's what we see happening with Mary. Her, her, her view of God is, is being expanded as Jesus lovingly challenges and strengthens her faith. Trials help us to go from seeing God as a vending machine so that we actually trust him as the one that we need, the God who will shepherd us through all of life, providing, protecting, and leading us. Well, after Martha, Jesus calls for Mary. I love that little detail in the text, right? He actually calls her. I want to talk to you. I want to comfort you. He's not indifferent. No one's twisting his arm. He wants to issue comfort and strength and hope to her. And so he calls her. And Mary, when she comes to Jesus, she's just overwhelmed with sorrow, so overwhelmed with sorrow that the text says she falls at Jesus' feet. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's not immediately obvious in our English translations, but the, the Greek word for deeply moved is a word that means to be angry, to be outraged, to be indignant. It's the same word that the Greeks would use to describe a horse that would snort in anger. That's applied to how Jesus responds to what he sees at this house of mourning. Well, what's Jesus angry about? Who is Jesus angry with? Well, it's clear from the text that he's not angry with Martha. He's not angry with, with Mary or even the, the people who are consoling them. He's angry at sin. He's angry at death. Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, tells us that death is our enemy. Death is not natural. Death is not your friend. Death, according to the Bible, is your enemy, and Jesus hates it. When he sees it, he gets angry. <laughs> Death takes the ones that we love from us. Death is the wages of our sin. It's a reminder of our foolish rebellion against God. And when Jesus sees that, he's not indifferent to it. He hates it. He's outraged by sin and death. Now, when we think about God's anger, we, we have to be careful because I think sometimes we wrestle as human beings with the idea of how does God's love consistent with his anger? You know, when we have emotions, we are, we're usually one or the other. But God being God is able to be both. His anger and his love are not opposed to each other. They're, they're actually very consistent. 
God's anger is the appropriate response to evil and wickedness and injustice. It is the father who loves his daughter the most whose anger rises most fiercely if someone mistreats her. You got a dad who's indifferent towards somebody mistreating his daughter, he doesn't love her. His anger is the appropriate response towards evil, injustice, and wickedness. And that's what we see from God in Christ. Well, some will assume that because God is sovereign over all things and that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, then his response toward our situations in the day-to-day moments of life, well, he already knows what's going to happen, so I'm assuming that he's just kind of cold and indifferent towards us, right? He knows it's going to happen, so why mourn over it? And some of us think that way about God sometimes. But that's not the God of the Bible. God's word shows us very something different about God in Christ. Not only is Jesus angry at sin and death that causes this funeral, that causes this sorrow and this mourning. Notice in verse 35, everybody's favorite memory verse. (laughs) Jesus wept. Now Jesus, he's not surprised that Lazarus is dead. We know from the very beginning of his dialogue with the disciples. He knew this was going to happen. He is God. And he's going to do something about it. But even though he knows it's going to happen, even though he knows he's going to do something about it, even then, he weeps. He's not cold. He's not indifferent because of his sovereignty. He weeps. He enters into the emotions of this with Mary and Martha, and he comes alongside of them, and he weeps with them. Oh, church, I pray that we see God's heart in this, that we, we have our thinking about God corrected by this as we see Jesus revealing the heart of God to us in this. Do you know that the psalmist in Psalm 56 says that, G, that God cares for you so much, that he is so acquainted with the details and sorrow of your life that he will not allow one tear that you shed today or tomorrow, he will not allow that tear to fall to the ground. Psalm 56 verse 8 says that he's got a bottle and he collects every tear that you shed. That's how much he cares for you. That's how aware and attentive he is. Kids, let me talk to you for just a second here. I want us to, kids, I want you and I to look at Jesus together for a moment. Because one of the difficulties about being young is there are times when, as a young person, you're going to feel misunderstood. You're going to be misunderstood by, by someone, maybe a, a teacher, a, a friend, or a parent. Can you think of times that you have felt misunderstood as a, as a young person? Think about that for a little bit. How did you feel when you're misunderstood by someone? You, you, you try to explain yourself, but... There's, there's no way for you to explain it. How do you feel? You, you often feel alone in that. Like no one understands what's going on. And Proverbs 14.10 affirms that. Proverbs 14.10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. There are times when, when you know your own bitterness, your sadness, but you're misunderstood and no one can understand what you're going through. But here's what I want us to see in this text. When no one gets it, when you feel like you're all alone in what you're going through and you're misunderstood and and you're disappointed, Jesus 
shows us that God is sympathetic. Here's what that word means. He comes alongside of us. He knows exactly what we're feeling. As God in the flesh, he's, he knows what we're going through. He knows what we're feeling. And not only that, he's also able to help us. So if, if God is showing us this is what God is like, if, if Jesus is showing us this is what God is like, what should we do with that? Well, when you're misunderstood, when you feel all alone in your sorrow, when, when, it, doesn't, when it feels like no one, no one knows what you're going through, go to Jesus. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He'll help you. Church, Jesus is not indifferent to the sin or injustice that is in this world. The pain and the sorrow of this world, he's not indifferent to that. And so if you've been sinned against for some reason, remember this morning that Jesus joins you in your sorrow and joins you in your anger. Dane Ortland says it this way. He says, God is angrier than you could ever be about the wrong done to you. And in his anger, unlike yours, his anger has zero taint of sin in it. So let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted. In that knowledge, release your debtor and breathe again. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way we know that that verse is true is if he understands and sees what's going on in your life, and he does. And he cares. But trusting God with our hurt, trusting God with even the wrongs that have been done to us, trusting God with our sorrow, trusting God with our future, trusting God with all of our life, that's a tall order. It feels scary. And so far, the only thing that Jesus has done in his consolation are shed tears and offer words. We can do that, right? So far, up to this point, Jesus has done nothing unique. We can do what Jesus has, we can, we can offer words of comfort, we can offer tears of consolation. So what makes Jesus' consolation unique? What makes his consolation different than any other consolation or comfort? Why can we trust him? Scene number three, the resurrection. Look at verse 38 with me. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth, with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So again, when Jesus arrives at this tomb, he calls for the large stone that had sealed the tomb to be moved. Martha hears this command and doesn't understand. I mean, the funeral's four days ago. It's likely hot weather. His corpse would be rotting by now. There would be a strong odor. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal the sick and make the blind to see. She did not yet know that he could tell death what to do. But Jesus' plan from the very beginning was to pull her out of her hopelessness by revealing who he is. Verse 40, he says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's going to show her his glory. And so those who are moving this stone, half expecting a rancid odor to come out, they moved the stone, obeying Jesus' command. And you got to imagine the scene. There's, there's Lazarus' body right there. They could see it. At that point, Jesus prays aloud. As he prays out loud so that all can hear him, those who had wept moments before would stand silent. Time would seem to stand still as Jesus finished his prayer. Suspense would hang in the air. And then Jesus breaks the silence. And he cries out in a loud enough voice for everybody to hear, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died, that they had mourned for and had a funeral for and buried four days ago, came out. You can imagine the family and friends rushing to Lazarus to, to take the linen cloth that had bound him together in his hands and his feet, wrapping, unwrapping Lazarus and hugging him and weeping, not tears of sadness, but tears of joy. The one who had died is alive. This past Friday night, I was scooping out ice cream for our family dessert, and I finished the tub of ice cream and threw it in the trash. I had reached the bottom of the tub, which sadly meant no more ice cream. But friends, unlike that tub of ice cream, we will never reach the bottom, the limit of God's power or his authority. You will never see the bottom. Uh, oh, there's, that's the end of it. There's no more power, no more authority. No, Jesus says in, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no limit to the power and authority of Jesus. The same words that spoke creation into existence are the same words that Jesus ushers and he says, come out and a dead man obeys him. And that's good news for us, friends. Because after sin entered the world, all of creation has been cursed. Romans 8 describes this curse as leaving all of creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And we see this all around us. We see it in car accidents and earthquakes 
in Haiti. We see it in hurricane, hurricanes hitting Louisiana this morning. We, we see it in pandemics like COVID. We see it in, in, in famine and death. The world is broken. Do you feel it? Do you hear the groans of creation? And yet in the midst of all those, the groans, God has promised a savior who would come and would swallow up death forever, who would redeem the world from the curse of sin. And friends, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is giving us a preview. He's pulling back the curtain to show he is that redeemer. He is the redeemer who will come again and make all things new. It's not Jesus was that back then in Lazarus' day. It's who Jesus is right now for us. I am, present tense, the resurrection and the life. That doesn't mean a trouble-free life. Lazarus still died. His sister still, his sister still mourned. But though we groan under, the, under, the, under the, the burden of sin, we do not live in this world in fear. We live in hope and in confidence about the future of Jesus. Just imagine Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead. If someone came up to Lazarus the next week and threatened to kill him in a mugging, Lazarus could, could laugh it off. Oh, really? That's the best you got? I've been there. I've done that. I know the one who raises the dead. Do what you can. It's not that he won't suffer again. He will die again, but he, he can die in confidence that God will raise him up. He knows the resurrection and the life. And so do we. Jesus is our redeemer. He will make all things new. But how? How will he do this? How will Jesus lift the curse? How are these not just mere words? Well, after the delay, after the consolation, after the resurrection, we see the last scene, scene number four, the rejection. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand what it, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He, he did not say this out of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now, we're not going to go into detail on all these verses. I'm just going to focus in on a couple of verses in this paragraph. And then we're going to come back to this paragraph in greater detail next week when we look to chapter 12. But remember in verse 25, Jesus told Martha, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, as we see with Lazarus, if a Christian dies, if you die as a Christian today, you die physically, but Christ will one day raise you up spiritually in the, final, in, the, in, the, in the resurrection. 
But then he goes on in verse 26 and says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, ever die. You, you, you might die physically. You very likely will die physically unless Christ comes back, right? But he, he says in verse 26, whoever, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I think the death that he's referring to here in verse 26 is what Revelation 20, verse 14, and Revelation 21, verse 8, refer to as the second death. The second death is God's eternal judgment of sin. It's referred to as the lake of fire. And Jesus is making the point here in verse 26 that those who trust in him will never taste the second death. Christian, if you're in Christ, you will never taste God's eternal judgment of sin. How is that possible? When the Pharisees see the people believing in him after his miracle, they decide he's a threat, and so they make plans to kill him. But notice in verse 50, the high priest explains, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then in verse 52, he says, not only for the whole nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Well, again, we'll talk more about this next week, but this is tragic irony. They are trying to kill Jesus because they see him as a threat to their way of life. But in reality, it's Jesus' death and his resurrection that are God's means of providing eternal life. Friends, if you assume this morning that you're a good enough person, that God will let you into his presence because you're a good enough person already, you will one day stand before God on the judgment day and find out that God is a lot more holy than you realized. And you're a lot more sinful than you realize. And in that moment, it will be too late for you. You will know the second death. But for those who know their need today, for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they will find Jesus, the sinless son of God, has died for them in love as their substitute. He would drink the cup of God's wrath for us so that we don't have to. Jesus would become a curse for us on the cross for our redemption. And on the third day, he would rise again to rescue anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you've not done that, I urge you, I plead with you to right now turn from your sin and trust in Christ who came to save Friends, what's your hopeless situation this morning? Maybe it's a sin habit that you've been trying to overcome, but it feels impossible to break. Maybe it's a broken marriage or a wayward child or an unbearable loneliness. What concerns you today that leaves you anxious and overwhelmed? What burdens do you carry that makes life feel like the sentence of death. Friends, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And as with Martha, he stands before us today asking us, do you believe this? When the pain refuses to go away, when the darkness is not lifted, when the body is in the grave and Jesus has not yet showed up, in that moment, Jesus comes to us and he asks do you believe this? 
Do you trust me? Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. In church, he loves you. We may have to wait, but his delay is not a delay of indifference. It's a delay of love. And as we wait, he comes alongside us to weep with us in our sorrow. And as we wait, he is not threatened by our questions of how long, O Lord, or where are you, God? He welcomes those questions and he joins us in our anger and outrage over sin and death. But he does more than stand beside us in our pain. Because he loves us, because Jesus is our redeemer who died and rose again, he will, as he promised, very soon come again and make all things new. And he will right every wrong. And he will swallow up death forever. And he will wipe away the tears from our faces. Church, do you believe this? It's true. So let's trust him together. Let's trust the one who raises the dead to life. Let's pray together.